we're going to jump in. Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 7. I think we, like, for those of you that are still a little PTSD'd from the Gospel of John and just how long it took us to get through that, I think at this point, like, I think we're in week 12 of Mark's Gospel. Chapter 7, we've gotten through Mark's Gospel way quicker. Of course, it's way shorter um, and allows itself to kind of preach through it. But just know this, like, there is light at the end of the tunnel here with Mark's Gospel. We're already in Chapter 7, we're just breezing right through it. Um, here's why Mark's gospel, if you read it, which, by the way, please, I would encourage you to go to our website. We have a little PDF that you can print off. Stick it in your Bible. It shows you each week where we're going to be in the upcoming week. So for the month of July, you could do some prep for your heart. You could read it the morning of. You could read it the week of. You could take all week and just meditate on that passage, pick a word, whatever. But we've made it incredibly easy for you to know where we're going, which is just to go to our website, Go to the Mark, uh, study of Mark's kind of the, uh, little page that we have set aside from there. And there's a PDF that you can read along and join us kind of in this journey. We'd love to have you guys follow along as we go through this. But really the reason that Mark's gospel goes so quick is that it's hard to like see the breaks. Like Mark doesn't let off. It's, it's really like a sprint for Mark to get through his gospel. So there's not a point in the story where he relents or disconnects and it other than a, a few like natural rhythms in Jesus's earthly ministry. So we'll get to the Passion Week. And of course, that changes tone a little bit. But other than some historical events, Mark's gospel just goes rapidly from one event to the next. And his purpose is to see the connective tissue to all of Jesus's life and ministry and, and what happened and, and not make some variation and not, not make these distinctions. And so like, like last week, I had to go back, like Matt brilliantly two weeks ago walked through a passage and preached it appropriately. And then I had to jump back in and go like, and then ha here's how Mark showed that these two things connect, right? And so one of the things that occurs over and over and over again in Mark's gospel, and if you're chugging along, it makes sense, is that it, it revolves really like at the core um, is first and foremost, of course, Jesus. But what we see Mark's gospel revolving around are these several interactions sometimes altercations that he has between a, diff a number of different groups, right? So like you've got Jesus and his disciples. And what we see in them is, is really just all of these interactions between Jesus and his disciples, and he's training them, he's sending them out, he's equipping them, he's calling them to a particular thing, which is following him, and, and they do. And so we just, just as an interaction, we see that. We see uh, Jesus interacting with the crowds, right? And that's a rhythm that kind of comes in and out of Mark's gospel. And, and Mark uses the crowds in some ways to show us, is Jesus elevating in popularity or is he diminishing in popularity with the crowds? And so, but Jesus, his, his primary goal is to minister among the crowds of people that flock to him and he teaches them and he heals them. And at times he even astounds them with the things that he does. And then you have Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders of his day. And we've talked about this before, but most often they come in direct conflict with Jesus's teaching, the things that he's doing, the things that he's saying, and, and several occasions throughout Mark's gospel. And that becomes really an anchor point for Mark's gospel is Jesus's interactions with the religious leaders of his day. Like back in Mark chapter two and three, we get really what amounts to like front row seats to this escalating tension between Jesus and the scribes as, they're, as, as Mark calls them. And, and Jesus' ministry we see back there is, is growing. It's growing in its celebrity in some ways. It's growing in its notoriety in others. And the scribes which were attached to this group called the Pharisees, they come to check him out, right? And they've got all of these cleverly crafted questions, and their hope is they're eventually going to, through their questioning of Jesus and their confrontation of Jesus, like capture him, right? Or trap him in a theological compromise, which for us, like we can sit down and we can argue theology over a cup of coffee or over a beer, and usually it doesn't erupt in one of us getting nailed to a cross, right? Um, but but this is the tone of the the these conversations or these confrontations that Jesus has with the religious leaders of the day, and in some ways, like we would we would not do wrong to gain some understanding, and in some ways. 
I could easily see us being up people that would go like, no, we're on the side of the Pharisees, right? Like in this story, like it's important for them to protect the integrity of the theological convictions that they had. And, the, and, and as we'll see, and we've talked about this before, really their purpose in protecting the theological integrity of the worship of the people of Israel was because they believed that that would then be tied to God sending his Messiah. And so keeping some integrity there, keeping some convictions around that. And so we operate often out of elevating the Pharisees to a place of that they're the antagonists in the story. And certainly they are doing antagonistic things to Jesus, but we also need to think about their motivations and their intent in, in a different way to kind of understand what's happening. Now, Jesus confronts their motivations and Jesus confronts their intents in these stories for sure. So that escalating tension, right, that we see that, that really grows and finds its first climax in, in Mark chapter 3 when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, if you remember that story, right? And he does it right in front of the Pharisees, right in front of the scribes, almost as like, what are you going to do about this? Like, look at what I'm doing, right? That interaction back in chapter 3, it highlights how much the Pharisees and the scribes misunderstood the law of God and really the heart of God for his people in giving them the law. So after this incident, he continues, Jesus, to teach and heal and he casts out demons and he performs several miracles and he walks on water, he feeds 5,000 people. And we're told that the Pharisees now and a group that they were in direct opposition to, the Herodians, they begin to actually conspire together. So what we've seen is Jesus is a great unifier of enemies, right? And they unify around their despising and hatred of him. And so they come together and they, they conspire, they seek to destroy Jesus and remove him from the theological landscapes because, because the, they believe that what he is saying and what he's doing is so dangerously subversive that it's going to unroot, unroot their power and authority. And so, and also like compromise the integrity of God sending his Messiah. So the, the irony is there is God's Messiah standing before them doing all of these things. And they're like, no, 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 you're saying dangerous things, Jesus. If you keep saying and doing these things, God won't send his Messiah. And he's like, uh, right? Like, I'm here, I'm, I'm like right before you. So, so then Mark chapter seven takes us right back to that conflict with the Pharisees and shows us that it's still escalating. Like it never relents, it just continues to escalate and it grows to the point that we know the story finds kind of its culmination with Jesus's arrest and his crucifixion. So, so the tension in Mark chapter two and three, it's with local scribes and Pharisees and then some other religious leaders in Galilee. So we're in the area of Galilee. Now in Mark chapter 7, we're told that some scribes, some Pharisees from Jerusalem are hearing about what's happening up in Galilee. And so they send some representatives. So now you've got like you've got Galilee. We've talked about Galilee before, and that's kind of this like podunk off the scene, not influential at all, like nothing significant is going to come from that area. They don't influence thought and culture and religious practices for all of Jerusalem. They're just kind of insignificant. So to send representatives of scribes and Pharisees from the city of Jerusalem, you've got like the big dogs checking this out now. You've got important people that actually have power and authority. They're hearing rumors about what's happening up in Galilee. So now they're sent to go see what this Jesus guy is all about. So I'm just going to reread through verses 1 through 13. I'm going to say this too. It's going to be a little bit different. Like I'm not going to exposit line after line after line. You could in this passage, but the whole passage, 1 through 23 in its entirety, Jesus is doing something like more like 30,000 foot level in that he is confronting Phariseeism in all of its forms, okay? So, so while we could walk through each kind of line, there'd be some intriguing thing, we're gonna do like a little bit more 30,000 foot level, but I wanna read that story again because the first part of the story sets up the conversation for the last part of it. So, so again, now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, um, and real quick, scribes are like professional paid Pharisees, Right, so Pharisees are rabbis, but these are the professional kind of like piece of what it means to be a Pharisee. So the scribes are coming up from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples ate with his hands that were defiled. So I would just go like, yeah, just, it sounds like seeing any middle school boy eat. They never wash their hands, right? So, so that is unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of their elders. So it's less about like physical cleanliness, although that's important. It's more about ceremonially being clean is what we're meant to understand here. Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining and couches. So you know that Jesus is up to something more than just saying like, hey, don't be gross, be clean. Wash your hands. That's a great thing. Like if you were to walk through our house, my wife is such a germaphobe that every single bathroom has a sign about washing your hands. There's signs everywhere in the house. Please wash your hands. Again, we are raising a middle school boy who is kind of gross and doesn't wash his hands. Like anytime he reaches in like in, like on family movie nights and like here he wants to share his candy with me and he reaches into his own bag with his little fingers and gives it to me. With it. I'm like, I don't know that I want to eat that because I literally don't know where those fingers have been, right? So he's not talking about that. He's talking about something different here, right? Because he starts to talk about washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and all that, right? And the significance of like going to the market, yeah, that would be gross and dirty, but he's talking about, again, something wholly different here, okay? So, and the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? That's huge right there. Mark that in your brain, okay? but eat with defiled hands. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, right? So Jesus is already pointing out that there's a disparity here in Phariseeism between what you say and what's in your hearts, right? So there's a disparity here happening. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, right? So you're leaving behind something that came from God and you're upholding something that didn't come from God. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of your God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God. So that word, he just gave you the definition of what that word means. It means that it's given to God or dedicated to God. Then you no longer permit him to do everything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and have many thing or many such things you do. So he's making the case here real quick, right? Jesus now that his fame and his celebrity has spread so far, like even to the capital that they've taken notice, and they've, they've sent some people now to investigate this. So they've heard these stories. They've heard that Jesus plays by his own rules when it comes to interpreting traditions around the Sabbath, right? He's not upholding Sabbath tradition. And, and that is now that we see that he's got this huge following, people are beginning to love him and the important people really want to know what he's all about, right? So today's sermon again is about Phariseeism. And, and when I say that word, I don't mean that we're only going to focus on this like particular first century group of humans that lived that, that were first called Pharisees. Although we're going to spend some time talking about them today, we have to add some definitions so that we can define like how it impacts and affects us today, right? So we need to know who they were, what they believed. Um, we need to understand also like really like in Jesus's day and time, like there's a great deal of diversity among the Pharisees, right? So not all of them were hostile to Jesus. Some invited Jesus to dinner. Some like Nicodemus, like we're told in John's gospel, like he visits with Jesus just in order to understand who Jesus is and what he's really saying. Like, instead of like, like saying like, you have differing views than I do. I'm going to like eradicate you and not talk to you. He's going to say, hey, you have differing views than I do. And what if we just sat down and had a conversation about that? What would that be like, right? Tried to understand where the other person is coming from. So, so we see that not all the Pharisees are hostile, but the Pharisees as a group are consistently presented as opponents to Jesus, right? And I want us to understand that Jesus, yes, he has an indictment here for them today and of them, but it's just as relevant for us today, right? So I think we're often under this misconception about the Pharisees. We think of them fundamentally as really, really religious people who think that they can somehow earn God's favor, like they're the super holy ones who really care about God's law that we often attach um, this term that they are legalists, um, they're scrupulous law keepers. Now, 
there's elements of that that are true, right? In, in our understanding of who the Pharisees were. But, but it's, it's, it's a little distorted and it's actually a little bit un, incomplete. So as a result, I think we, we misunderstand what the Pharisees were about in Jesus's day. And, and not, not, not the details about who they were, but just what their heart was about. And I think when we miss that, then it makes it all too easy for us to miss the Pharisee, Pharisee, how am I trying to say that word? It's not a word that I'm just making up. Like the, that tendency in our own hearts and lives and, and where it lives, right? Where it lives in our culture, right? So, so first, again, understand this. That there's no job of Pharisee, right? It's not something that you applied for. It's not something that you went to school for. Like there's no job. It's a religious sect, not totally unlike and this is where it gets a little bit weird. So it's a little bit like denominations, right? So there's Essenes, there's Sadducees, but it's probably their influence and power and authority probably makes them more like a political party today than it would be a denomination today. So there's some aspect that you could go like, ah, there's some denominational lines within, within what it means to be um, a religious leader. But we need to understand that, right? They're, they're, they're probably because of the cultural influence that they had, the religious influence. They're really like gatekeepers for all of Israel. And so, so think of them as like thought leaders and journalists and scholars and activists like of their day. That's, that's who they were. And they're really the self-appointed guardians of cultural orthodoxy for all of Israel. And, and though they were likely like outnumbered, like they weren't the largest group or the largest denomination or largest party. Um, they, they were probably outnumbered by like the Sadducees easily. There was more. Um, they, they maintained this high level of popular support amongst the people. They're really populists, right? They, like, they were liked and admired by the people because their message was, was really for like the average kind of person. Like it was obtainable. They could understand it. So, so why, did they, why did they teach or excuse me, what did they teach? Well, they believed that the reason that Jerusalem and really all of Israel was under the rule of the Roman Empire was because they as a people, now and there's a track record for this. Like we can look at this and go like, well, that seems off, but there's a track record in their history when they became disobedient and unfaithful and not living um, under the law of covenant that God had established with them as a people, often God would, would send them to exile, right? So we, there's the Assyrian exile, there's the Babylonian exile. And so they are equating Roman rule over them as a people that they've just been unfaithful to the covenant, right? And so if the people in their hearts, if they're like, if we could just get the people to turn back to God and start obeying his law, then God would deliver them from Roman oppression. So they embraced not only the Torah and the prophets, but they built out, the Torah is just the law, right? The Pentateuch, the law, like the first five books of the Old Testament um, contain the law. And so they held a high value of following the law. They included what the prophet's message, which really the prophet's message were always about covenant unfaithfulness, like not, upho not upholding the law, but they added an oral tradition to it called the Mishnah, right? And so they started adding kind of their commentary on the law. And so that then starts to get handed down from generation to generation. And it's as isolated as like, like a Pharisee's family or like in a certain region, right? So it becomes much more cultural laws and rules. So there's a spectrum of belief amongst the Pharisees, right? But there was a core for all of them of belief and action. And so much of that action for them, like what do we do as Pharisees? What are we calling the people to? Centered around what I think you could call like what made Israel distinct or like the Jewish distinctives. Like what did God give to his people to set them apart? So there's things like he gave them a Sabbath to honor God and to find rest, right? And that's unique to God's people, or he gave them a long list of food and dietary laws, or he gave them, guys, y'all ready for this? Circumcision, right? And so these are all these distinctives that God gave to Israel. And, and the Pharisees were very concerned about pushing their people back to observing those distinctives because it's what set them apart. And they believed the less that they lived into those distinctives, 
the more time it was going to take for God to rescue them and send his Messiah. So back in Mark chapter 2 and 3, we see that their concern for Sabbath keeping, which is right and honorable. We as the church should have more interest in Sabbath keeping. It is something that God wants us to do. And so we've also seen that Jesus shows up and challenges their version of Sabbath keeping, right? Which was filtered through that oral tradition through many generations down to these things that that really weren't a part of God's design for Sabbath keeping. So in today's passage, we see something similar about their concern for like ritual purity and the laws around ritual purity. So they see Jesus and his disciples, and what are they doing? They're eating with unwashed hands. And yes, again, it's gross. That's gross, right? You would want to just, as a normal human, you should want to wash your hands before you put something into your mouth with those hands, right? But that's not quite what this is about, right? It's important to understand this. It's not about cleanliness here for Jesus. He's confronting holiness in their heart, right? So what the Pharisees have done is that they've taken a Levitical requirement, something that God gave to them. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, like I know that you all do and read through it, you see this, these long lists of requirements and they're broken up into different categories. And so what the Pharisees have done is they've taken the, the Levitical requirements that were for the priests, right? So priests, you, you could be a priest if you came from the tribe of Levi and nobody else could be a priest. So that's kind of where we get that. So they had all these requirements and you can go back in the book of Leviticus and read this, like this is how priests were supposed to perform their priestly duties, right? How they washed the bowls, how they took care of the vessels, how they took care of the temple, right? And they are taking that thing that applied to the priests and how they handled all of the furniture and all of the stuff inside of the temple and applying it to daily lives, right? So if you go back to the book of Exodus, we get all these rules for worship, if you remember that, right? God requires the priests to wash themselves before they offer a sacrifice. The bowls and the utensils used in the temple, they're, they're set apart. They're not used for anything else. So it's not like, hey, you could just bring your own bowl to temple worship. The bowls that were in the temple stayed in the temple. That's all they were used for. They weren't used for like popcorn on movie night at all. Like that was it. So how you clean those, how you take care of those, it's all set apart. They're all cleansed for the use in sacrifice and rituals in the temple. And the Pharisees said, well, we want to be set apart too. So we'll follow these priestly regulations for washing and purification in our own homes. So if you go to the market, right, you might become defiled because you might touch something dead at the market. You're probably gonna touch something dead at the market, right? So then when you go home, you need to purify yourself before you eat. So again, they're taking something from Leviticus 7 for the priests and applying it in their everyday life. And that would be very, very, very like, they're saying like, you should be very, very concerned about also like what you eat, right? So if you go back to, to Mark chapter two, they're offended that Jesus, not only what he's eating, but they're offended at who he's eating with, if you remember that story. So all of a sudden, it's not just what you eat and how you eat it, it's who you eat with. So they're offended that Jesus is now eating with somebody that's unclean. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so they would make these things dedicated to God, right? So they would, so, so this is what gets to the disparity or the inequity that Jesus is confronting about what's in their hearts, what's truly living in here versus what they're saying. And there's a difference between their actions and what they say and what's truly living in their hearts because they came up with this concept, right? That you could make something korban or dedicated to God. It's basically a vow, right? And you would say this thing is korban. It's now dedicated to God. So you set that thing apart from common use and then you would commit it to holy religious use, which is what those bowls and vessels were meant to be. They were not meant for everyday use just for that. But then they started making things around their household korban, right? And so according to their tradition, this was an unalterable vow. It pronounces something korban over something that you own. You can't take it back later. So once you, once you dedicate that, it's done, right? So there's examples of and illustrations of them saying like people that were wrestling with like, I don't, I don't know how to, I don't have the capacity to like take care. It's a commandment to like honor my father and mother and take care of them in their old age. And I just don't want to. 
And so I'll declare my house Korban, dedicated to God. And that, that's a tradition that they had come up with that overrides God's commandments for us to honor a mother and father and take care of them, right? And so if they dedicated their house to God, like they could live in it, but mother-in-law couldn't or father-in-law couldn't. And so, so they, they found these ways that to, to work around the law of God while still upholding some type of like value, but they've left the actual commandment of God. So does that make sense? And so declaring something korban would, would effectively underwrite God's commandments or laws and uphold a tradition. So, so the Pharisees, they would practice these rituals themselves. They would teach these things to other people. And then they became like thought leaders and influencers in their culture. And they wanted everybody to kind of adopt this same common core of values. And Jesus is speaking out against this in this passage, right? He has an indictment for them. He calls them what? He calls them hypocrites, right? He says, meaning this, like, what is being displayed in your life out here in every place seems to be incredibly inconsistent with, with what's happening when nobody's watching, right? And so that's Jesus's main indictment against them, right? He's saying like, yeah, on the outside, everything appears to be fine right? It appears that you're upholding cultural traditions that nobody really questions, and so you're doing the right thing. But the reality is, when you really dig a little bit deeper, it reveals how far and how hard your heart is towards God. So look at verse 8, right? He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So he's making a case that whatever your actions are out here to the Pharisees, they may be good. They may be justified, right? You may have good intent and motivation in those things, but just know this, you've left the commands of God to uphold your own traditions and rules that you make, right? He says it again in, in verse 7, 9. He says, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. And if you just pause there and ask yourself the question, which would you rather uphold, right? the commandment of God, maybe this, which would you be more fearful of breaking? The commandment of God or your own or somebody else's tradition? Like they were living in no fear of breaking God's commands anymore as long as they upheld their own cultural traditions. And even more strongly, he says in verse 7, 13, he says this, he says, when you do that, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do, right? So, well, how does this work? Well, think about extending like this temple purity laws to daily life, right? So again, most of us are not familiar. Most of us cannot recite, and I just would feel so wrong if this is true, all of the laws around temple purity that are found in the Old Testament, right? We just, we don't know those things. But he's saying you're taking those things because they knew them extensively and you're applying them to daily life you're applying them to something in an area that they were never meant to be applied to. So basically, you're compelling everybody to live like a Levite or a priest, and you're turning everyone's home into a temple. And so when you take something that God intended for like here and a specific purpose, and you try to like extend it over to there, what have you done? You've left the commandment of God because that commandment was over there for something over there, and it was for the temple, and you've tried to bring it somewhere where it doesn't belong, and in that you invent a new like tradition, right? And you're holding to the tradition, but you've left the commandment. Or it can be worse. Not only can you leave the commandment behind, but you can, in your attempt to circumvent the law of God with your own tradition and uphold your own rule or tradition over that, you've actually made the word of God void for yourself and for somebody else. So Jesus says in verse 13, um, and this is a little bit of a transition, he says, and many such things you do. So, so what's the common thread here? What, what type of thing is this? What's the fundamental sin here that Jesus is getting at? Is this Phariseeism here is a hypocritical establishment of man-made tradition, right? That at best puts the emphasis in the wrong place, and at worst, you actually avoid obeying God. Let me just walk through that again. Phariseeism here is a hypocritical establishment of a man-made tradition. And just as I listen to this, because some of you might be going like, I'm not, I'm not a religious leader from first century, 
you know, ancient Near East. I don't know all of the Leviticus. So you might not feel like Phariseeism is applying to your heart right now, right? If you just went by like who they are and what they did. But, but listen to this definition. Phariseeism here is a hypocritical establishment of a man-made tradition that at best puts the emphasis in the wrong place. Baptists can't dance. And at worst enables you to avoid actually obeying God. So that definition, does that sound like maybe that definition might creep its way? I don't, and listen, this is not for you guys to go, oh, I know some people like that. I want you to go like, yeah, do you know some people like that? Because maybe they're sitting in the chair that you're sitting in right now. Like apply it to yourself first before you apply it to somebody else and go, is my heart capable of that? Is my heart capable of holding up a rule that I've made for myself or for my family that I, that I expect other people to, to play out? It has nothing to do with the law or commandment from God. And I'm applying it wrongly to the wrong people, to the wrong place, right? Um, so I, I think this just reveals, because that's so true, right, of all of us in the room. And I think it just reveals how off our idea of what Jesus is doing here and confronting Phariseeism, right? The Pharisees, um, yes, they're these scrupulous law keepers, but they also invent their own traditions and rules and laws. And sometimes when they invent their own laws, they do it in order to avoid actually obeying God's law. And that, that's a problem. That should be a problem all day long. And now, like you, and we do this in all sorts of different ways, right? Like God's given us a great mission to fulfill, right? Which is to make disciples who make disciples. That's a, that's a, it's, it's a command, it's a law, it's a, it's a commission from him. And, and, and some of us go like, well I, well, I don't have to do that because other people do that. And we're upholding like a tradition and a rule that we've come and we're avoiding God's commands, right? And so as we kind of walk through then, what does this all mean, Right? Um, as they declare things Corbin, like we do that too. Um, how does this all compare? Where, do, where does God's law sit in this? What do we do with the, the plague of Phariseeism? Because I don't think that Jesus is confronting Pharisees here in this story for it to be a story that just took place a couple thousand years ago. I think it has room to lift itself off the page and confront our own very hearts first and foremost. So, so what do we do with this? Well, we need to see this. Jesus is confronting a particular thing that's it's a little bit interesting in this last part of the conversation in 14 through 15, right? I mean, he's confronting this idea that, that sin is not about what goes in, right? So it's not about the information and the food and the things and the things that we watch and see. Like, it's not about the things that come in because the reality is it's about what already resides in our hearts. It's about what comes out, right? So Jesus indicts the Pharisees, but then he turns to the crowd and he, give, he gives them this brief parable, right? That gets at the heart of what this, this misunderstanding about the Pharisees and, and, and why they have it. Verse 14 and 15, he says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, right? Now, we need to think like first century laws about cleanliness and food, and we'll get to that in a second. But don't, don't just think like, oh, can I watch a rated R movie or not, right? Like he's talking, he's confronting these strict laws, dietary laws, right, um, that the people were living under. And so he said, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him, right? So what defiles you is the fact that you're a person who is infected and affected by sin. And so in fact, without the regeneration of Jesus and the gospel, like you are a defiled person. So the, the, the disciples is usually, they're a bit confused as they hear that. So he's got to explain it to them. And so he tells them that defilement is fundamentally about the heart. And since food doesn't like, I don't know how all of this works. I'm not a doctor, but food doesn't go into your heart when you eat it. Like, we know that, right? We can all safely say our basic understanding of human anatomy and physiology is that food does not go into your heart when you eat it, right? And since food doesn't go into your heart, what you eat cannot truly defile you. Now, at this point, Mark interjects an important implication here, right, of, of 
what Jesus is saying, an implication that was not fully recognized until years after Jesus was raised from the dead and resurrected, right? And it, he said it clearly here in this passage. It took some arguments between like Paul and Peter and some different people to really understand what this was about. But he said this in 19b. He says, thus he declared, all foods are clean, right? So in this, Jesus is doing a couple things. He's confronting this disparity, this inequity in the human heart versus what comes out. And he's also just declaring that under this new covenant, that those dietary restrictions are fulfilled in him and no longer needed. So, so this is confusing even for us today, right? Um, because it confronts us in a few different ways. So let me make a few comments about this. First, this, this declaration by Jesus is different from the earlier indictment that he had, right? So earlier when Jesus was criticizing the Pharisees and their traditions that nullified, that set aside the God of word, that circumvent the, the word of God, but here it looks as though he's like kind of doing the same thing, but what he's doing is he's establishing a new tradition, right? Or that he's confronting that, that seems to abolish the law of God. Because Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, if you go back and read through this long list, they're clear, right? So what is Jesus doing here? Is he, is he defying the word of God? Because when you go back to those, it's clear that just some foods were clean and some foods were unclean. There's some foods that could be eaten and there's some foods that can't, right? Cows, sheep, goats, clean, eat them all day long. Camels, pigs, predators, and by predators, yes, I mean the alien predator because he's too hard to, to catch. Unclean, right? Trout and salmon, clean. Shrimp, catfish, crab, unclean. Chicken, dove, and quail, clean. Hawks, eagles, vultures, unclean, right? I'm going to guess that somewhere on this list of unclean things, y'all have eaten some of that, right? Like, who likes bacon? Unclean. And do you even think twice about it? Are you like, oh no, is this, un like, is this a part of the, no, right? Like, we eat chickens and doves and quails. I hope none of you are out eating eagles at this point. But, so we get it. Like, it presents this problem for us because we're like, well, why are we not following all of these rules still, right? And so, so, so here's Jesus not indicting a tradition, an addition to God's word. He's making a new declaration about God's word right? So, so that's important. He's not just creating an indictment against something that they were doing. He's making something new here, right? So, so why? Because he's establishing a new covenant. So why is this declaration not the same as establishing a man-made tradition that enables you to disobey God's law? So why is Jesus not doing the same thing as the Pharisees are here? Because Jesus, and we just have to stand on the firm belief of this, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the I Am. He is the one who gave the law in the first place. Therefore, as God who gives the law, he is the right and the authority to fulfill the law and then alter the law and say those dietary laws and restrictions that were for ethnic Israel under this new covenant of grace, this new covenant, this new movement of my mission called the gospel that now is going to infuse and inject the kingdom of God with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they don't live by the same dietary laws. Some of them eat camels, some of them eat pigs, some of them eat things that are not on, those, on that list that we're not supposed to eat, but we're going to welcome them with hospitality and generosity because they are now a part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is doing something incredibly new here, right? And, and Mark's gospel begins to identify Jesus as the living God king who has authority over even his own laws and rules. That's not to say that God's constantly changing his rules and laws, but with Jesus, something new is happening, right? So, so why would God, through his son, change these food laws? Well, there's a lot to be said here, but fundamentally, right, the food laws were given to Israel for a specific period of history as a way of separating God's people from the surrounding areas, like what made them distinct from the other nations, and as a way of teaching them truth about himself and sin and holiness and death. And the main point is that the food laws, along with the other ceremonial laws, were designed by God for a limited and particular time and purpose. So they were a part of the wall that separated God's people from the rest of the world, from Jews, from Gentiles. But Jesus came not to build a bigger wall, but to tear that wall down. The dividing wall of hostility is now torn down. He is Israel's long-awaited promised Messiah. But he is also 
the Lord and God and King of all of creation. And so he came to fulfill those temporary food laws to restore to God's people all of the good foods that God has made. Right? So the, the temporary nature of these commands, it's hinted at in the Old Testament itself. Like if you go to Psalm 24, right, we see this picture. This, the psalmist writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So God owns all of it. God created all of it. He owns all of it. He can establish what he wants to establish, and he can de-establish what he wants to de-establish. And so he says, hey, those food laws are no longer even for you. I've come to fulfill this, and now you can eat of what I say you can eat of. And so when someone tries to use eating pork as an evidence of Christian hypocrisy, right? Like, oh, like, I cherry-picked this rule that says you can't eat pork, but then right next to it is another rule. Just understand, like when we get accused of cherry-picking the commands of God, like which ones we want to obey and which ones we don't, there's a lack of knowledge and understanding about what these rules and laws from God were about, right? And so there are specific dietary laws given to Israel that no longer apply to the church because Jesus said all foods are now made clean, right? So you need to know that there are clear and obvious reasons in the Bible itself for why the food laws were temporary, why they were given to Israel, and then why Jesus declares all food to be clean. So go, eat some pig. You're going to be okay, right? Well, you may not be okay in the long run in terms of like heart issues, but you know, whatever. So the next thing is this. We're just meant to see like sin just gets in everything, right? This is kind of the point that Jesus is making here. He closes it with this in verses 20 through 23. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So it's this thing that's in you that makes you defiled. So it doesn't matter how holy or good something is, if there's a person behind it, if there's a human behind it, it doesn't matter what ideology it is, it doesn't matter what political system it is, it doesn't matter what, like any ideology that humans can think of, if there's a heart of a person behind it, then evil can come out of it. That's just, that's just the point because it emanates from this sin thing that's within us, right? So external law is a good thing. It restrains evil. It instructs us about what is good. Um, it's a great diagnosis of what's wrong with us, but external laws in and of themselves can never fix what's truly wrong with us because the problem is not fundamentally external. It's a heart problem. That's what Jesus is saying here. So take God's law, this holy, good, and righteous law that he gives to his people as a blessing, right? What will human beings do with those temple regulations and those food laws and those laws about vows? What do they do with them? They do what they have always done with anything that's good that comes from God. We'll distort it. We'll, we'll make hypocrites out of ourselves with it, we will find very creative ways to sin with the good things that God gives us. We will use our own laws to avoid obeying God's laws. So keep watch on your virtues, right? On the good things that you do, even the good things that you do. Because if we can twist God's good law, we can twist any good thing to serve our own traditions. So move on. Um, it reveals this, which is just like, it's a sin to invent sins. And we all do it, right? Um, but it's a sin to invent sins. Put it another way, it's a sin to establish your own righteousness. This is why Phariseeism is, is popular in every single generation. That's why Jesus, when he went to a tomb and, and, and went to a cross and went to a tomb and raised out of the dead, Yes, he defeated sin, but it did not defeat this ugly thing that still lives in every human generation, right? Which is, which is Phariseeism. It still exists today, and it comes in every size and shape and color, and there's great power in it, right? Because there's great power in being a cultural gatekeeper, right? And so if you establish your own tradition and you fulfill your own tradition and you can convince others to follow your tradition— that's a lot of power 
right? It's a lot of power, especially if you can convince them that your tradition is from God, that your commandments are the doctrines of God. You become the arbiter of guilt and forgiveness. I'm going to guess that a lot of us probably grew up in churches that feel like this, right? And you could point to like, like if you grew up like in a fundamental church, you could probably give a long list of the rules and laws that you were to follow in that fundamental church. And then if you held them up against the commandments that God's created for us to obey, you're going to find out real quick that those things are not the same thing, right? They're, they're just not. They're, and, and, and in some ways, you were told to uphold these traditional values in, in the fundamental upbringing um, so that you actually could avoid following God's rules and laws, right? So it's, it's alive and, and it breeds power today, right? Because if you can do that, you can get other people to do that. You've got a lot of power, especially if you can convince them that your tradition, again, is from God, that your commandments are the doctrines of God. You become, again, that arbitrate of, of guilt and forgiveness for those people. You become the mediator of grace. Um, you can pressure others. You can manipulate others. You can get your way with others. You can absolve others of their guilt. You can earn their admiration and respect. And God despises all of that, right? He hates it in the first century in its Judaism form. He hates it in its conservative fundamental form. He hates it. You ready for this one? And it might throw you a little bit. He hates it in its liberal progressive form also, right? So beware of making personal opinions, practices, and convictions into divine law. Like we have lived through a year. Trust me, because I've had the conversations. We have lived through a year where I have seen people make their own personal opinions, practices, and convictions divine law. You don't think that I'm telling the truth here? Have a conversation with masks about people and see where it goes real quick, right? Opinions, practices, convictions, and divine law. And that goes all over the map with all sorts of things, right? Like we do this probably like as an example, like alcohol becomes a big issue in the church, right? So we take a personal conviction and a practice. I don't drink, but then we try to impose that on other people, alcohol, and then we do that the other way, right? Well, I do, so everybody should. And so we, we've moved away from traditions and laws, and, and we're just talking about like our own opinions about these things, right? We, we do it with food. Just think about like the food wars of the culture that we live in today, and how we take opinions and thoughts about those things, right? Do you eat gluten? Do you not eat gluten? Do you eat organic? Do you eat non-organic? Do you eat meat? Are you a vegan or a vegetarian, right? And we take these personal convictions and opinions and traditions and laws, and we, we, we put them out there as if they are, like, certainly are our own commandments, but we expect other people to live into them. So, so we go wrong when we take a personal conviction and make them public expectations, right? Jesus declared all food is clean. So then what does this mean? Well, real obedience is costly and pharisaical obedience is cheap. So pharisaical obedience always masquerades as true virtue and true goodness, right? But the reality is it's always an attempt to attain a moral reputation on the cheap, right? So all you have to do is say something is korban. It's dedicated to God. All you have to do is wash your hands. Pharisaical obedience loves to signal its virtue. Now, before we freak out about that term, virtue signaling, let me just say I'm not talking about it in the way that we would talk about it in today's culture wars, right? I'm not quoting Ben Shapiro when I say virtue signaling, okay? So just let's not freak out about that. I'm quoting it in the way that Jesus would quote it. Right? When Jesus would say, hey, if you're going to stand on the corner and, and project to everybody that you're some great person of prayer, right? but the reality is you're praying when everybody can see you and everybody's watching, but then you don't pray at all at home, like you don't communicate with God at all, like that's signaling a virtue that's just not true about you at all. Right? And so he confronts this in us to not be a people, right? I think about like, I'm not going to go on a social media rant right here, but social media hits home for me on this one because it's a place where we can do that, right? And one of the reasons I have opted out of social media is I had a deep conviction. Like I can go online and say what I believe about anything and I feel real good about it. And people are going to like it. They might even comment on it. Y'all can keep doing that if you want. I checked out because I realized this. 
Like it's so easy for me to project something that's not true of myself in that platform and never have any accountability, never have anybody ask me any questions, never even say like, well, are you actually doing the things that you're talking about? And I realized like I'm a real person and I'm called to a real people in a real time, in a real place. And so I find my life so much more living into the mission of God when, I, when I'm confronted with the reality of like, it doesn't mean anything unless there's actually a person that I'm sitting knee to knee with, right? And so to, I can go online all day and say, I believe this, but if it's never backed up with anything, then it's the same with what the Pharisees are doing. Guys, we're going to wrap it up real quick with this. Is there any good news in this? Is there any good news about Phariseeism that hits our heart today? Because believe it or not, the presence of this in our midst today, and it is, it's in our hearts, it's in our culture, it's in our churches it actually points to something good and right. It points deeply to a need for us to be justified, to feel vindicated, to be approved, right? We all want this. We, we all want to know that we're somehow good people. We all have this deep sense that we're not, right? We, we want to believe that we're good people. But we have this deep sense of like, well, that doesn't always match up with what I do and what I say. Like we know we're guilty, we're insecure, we're proud at times. And the good news of Phariseeism is that in seeking to establish our own righteousness, we actually point to our desperate need for a righteousness outside of ourselves. We subtly, if not very ironically, acknowledge our lack, our need, our guilt. If, if we do not feel the pangs of conscience in this, right? If we do not feel the, the condemnation and accusation that sits at the core of this, like, why would we try to establish a righteousness on our own? Like, we feel it, and we're trying to set things right on our own. We wouldn't invent our own traditions if that were not true. We wouldn't try to impose them on others if that were not true. So Phariseeism thrives on guilt and shame and condemnation, a deep awareness of being out of accord with reality. So, so we lower the bar, right? We, we look at God's commandments, we say they're too high, so we lower the bar with our own traditions, right? We, we move the goalposts so we can at least score from time to time, right? And, and wherever there is guilt, though, like wherever there is guilt in the human heart, God just sees it as a beautiful opportunity because the guilt of the human heart cries out for the grace of God. So we want you to resist Phariseeism in your own heart, right? Um, we want you to, to resist signaling things that aren't true. We want you to resist the inequity and the disparity of what you say versus what lives in your heart. And the beautiful way to do that is to submit to King Jesus, who restores all things, sets and creates all things new in our hearts. And it's his righteousness that is given to us freely through the cross and not our own that we need to submit to today. So let me pray, and we're going to wrap things up. Let's pray that you would respond today. Um, one of the ways that we're going to respond is by going to um, the table. And at the table today, there's bread and there's juice for you to drink. And at that table, all of your self-righteousness dies. And the righteousness of Christ comes alive in your heart, in your own effort, your own sense of approval is met with the overwhelming grace of God as Jesus freely gives himself to you and his body is broken and his blood is poured out. So come to the table. Let's respond to our King Jesus this morning.